Hi, it's Ben and Adela. Welcome to another episode of Us Rambling. No, seriously, I'm just kidding. This week's episode is quite good, and I think many of you students will be able to relate. We'll be reflecting on the first year of our PhD, as well as second year blues. We'll share voice messages sent in from other students about their own experiences along the way as well. Let's get right to it. So Ben, we mentioned a few episodes ago that you kind of started off here mostly all by yourself. Um, what was your first year like? Yeah, my first year was lonely. Uh, <laughs> um, it was very different to what it is now. Uh, I guess at that point I was just, you know, setting the foundation for my project, learning about what it was all about, what had to be accomplished, and uh, most of all, most important of all, setting my hypothesis and my aims and. What I was setting out to do. Um, so you're getting to know your project in a way. Yeah, definitely. That first year is a settling in sort of adjustment period. Would you say? Yeah, hundred um, percent. Especially with the change of campus, coming from Curtin as well, coming to Perkins is a change in itself. And setting up the lab here as well was another experience because I'm not sure if you remember from the previous episode, um, we one of the first lab groups to set up here. I was the first PhD student to really set up in a lab environment. Um, What's so, the lab space like in the labs here? It's... it's Spacious. <laughs> it's, it's spacious. <laughs> it's really nice, isn't it? There's not many people around. You're not bumping elbows with other people. I know it can be really busy in other research labs. Um, yeah. Um, <laughs> we both came from Curtin, so yeah. you know, I think you can reflect a bit on that as well. Um, like... Benches are full of equipment and then there's a lot of research is going on. Um, a lot of research going on. So we're quite lucky in a way. We have um, a lot of equipment that we don't really necessarily need to book to use. We kind of can just rock up and use. I know in certain labs, mm. you kind of have to make bookings in advance. And if you miss out, well, you can't really do your experiments for that week, which can be very stressful yes. for students, yes. especially if they're under the pump. Oh, my goodness, yes. And if you're making bookings as well, you have to time your experiment very well before that because if you mistime it you can end up clashing with someone else and then it can kind of ruin your experiment and sounds very messy so yeah we're mm. very lucky the labs are lovely and we have such great facilities here um how was it sort of meeting your supervisors for the first time I, I know you said you were settling into your project but you were here alone there were no other students <laughs> it was really daunting to be honest because i didn't know if i was doing the right thing or doing enough at that time uh, looking back, I think I only had one of my supervisors in maybe twice a week and I think another one of my supervisors didn't join until five months into the project. And my main supervisor, he works over at the hospital, so I didn't. I saw a bit of him, but it was more like, are you okay? It wasn't so much a work meeting. So I guess I was kind of finding my own feet at that time as well. Mm. Um, and it was difficult trying to get into the lab as well because we were just settling in. So we obviously had a lot of um, essential equipment on order. Like mm. when I say essential, I'm, I'm talking about pipettes and um, basic consumables. It was uh, we had a few chairs, a few empty um, sets of drawers, and the benches were very bare. Yeah, bare um, minimum to start off with. Yeah, but 
since then, we, we built it up a bit and then you came on about a year yeah, later. everything was fully stocked when I came in. I'm just kind of <laughs> here helping myself. <laughs> so in terms of our workload in the first year, so we mentioned that we don't have assignments and deadlines like undergrad students do. We have milestones. And I think one of the most important milestones during the first year of our PhD would be our six-month research proposal, which is due six months after our full-time study period has commenced yep. so how was that for you that was okay it was actually that time you don't have a lot of other things going on uh, i know i mentioned all this setting up at the lab and all that but it's kind of that's gone that's going on in the background you sort of audit the stuff you wait for it to come in but in the meantime you're reviewing the literature you're mm. exploring what has already been done or established in your area and you can find the gaps and find the gaps collect methods um that you might find useful um see what others have done that you know may help make yeah. your case so for those who are unfamiliar reviewing the literature means that you sort of go out and have a read of reputable peer-reviewed journal articles about what's been done in your research field mm -hmm. and try and identify what's been done what you can do where some of the gaps in knowledge are that you will be hopefully um adding your knowledge to throughout the, the your phd um, which is really important to writing and getting familiar with your project and coming up with a research proposal. And usually in the first year, you would probably do some sort of literature review and you would write something like that up. So that would be fairly important as well. Um, were you here every day? I was. I was here every day. I didn't know any different. <laughs> I was here oh, that's uh, fair. nine to five. Looking back, I don't know what I did from <laughs> nine to five. Not very productive first year. I would say that... It started off productive because I was just like, no, I'm in, I'm going to read, I'm going to write. And well, I feel like that experience got a bit mundane and I was like, I was starting to push out knowledge after a while. Like you, there's only much, there's only so much information you can, you can retain. And um, yeah, right. I probably started to feel a bit overwhelmed as well at the same, like at that point, cause you're, well, I was new to my field, so I wasn't continuing my research, my honors. So it was very overwhelming. Um, but I think I handled that okay. Yeah, nothing first year Ben couldn't handle. Yeah. Um, I think in a way we were kind of opposite. So when I started, obviously you had already been there for a while and um, it wasn't really directly a continuation of my honours work, but it was kind of in the same sort of cardiovascular research area. So I was mm. already kind of familiar with some of the... The terminology. Um, yeah, and I was really lucky the year before I started, I kind of knew I would be starting. So the year before, I had already started reading um, the literature and journal articles, and I actually had the opportunity of writing uh, a review as well. So I kind of came into my first year with a kind of understanding in a way. Um, but because mine is a human study, so we are recruiting participants and collecting samples from them, we had to do... Um, like ethics, we had to submit our ethics approval. And my first year was, a lot of it was dedicated to doing my research proposal, a lit review. I also did the um, protocol for both of the projects, which basically just outlines um, components of the research, what I'll be doing, what kind of participants I'll be looking to include in my study, what happens if things go wrong. So that kind of thing, because that's the document you sort of submit to the ethics committee. And the ethics process took months and months and months and months because obviously um, human research ethics has to be regulated and, you know, you have to make sure that it's safe for the participants. Definitely. definitely. So, yeah, it was a big, long process, which is great because it has to be. 
Um, and I won't go into too much detail because I think we'll actually talk about that in a later episode, um, an ethics episode. But yeah, so a lot of it was paperwork. A lot of it was work through a computer, through the RGS website, submitting um, you know, application and revising that application, meeting with them, going through feedback. So I wasn't here every week then. I was here <laughs> once a week. I think it was on a Thursday because that would be the day that both my supervisors would be in. So I would have weekly meetings with them and I would be in once a week. I'm sorry. <laughs> that was once <laughs> a week? Like Yeah. Um, but I have to say, like, just to clarify, behind the scenes at home, I was still doing a lot of work. So <laughs> I just didn't feel the need Damn. to come here. <laughs> yeah, I was very lucky in my first year to have been able to. I was working from home way before COVID made it a thing, okay? <laughs> um, you so that was good. You trendsetter you. Yeah, but I think as well, because like you said, settling in into your project, mm. I think for me personally, it was such a big change from my honours and my undergrad. I felt like I needed a lot of hand-holding. I probably still do. <laughs> but um, yeah, a lot of hand-holding. Yeah, in the sense that you're kind of just trying to wrap your head around this project. So you still don't really understand completely what you're doing. So it was a lot of weekly meetings with supervisors, a lot of to-do lists, just a lot of checking with them to make sure I'm doing all the right things and, um, you know, obviously needing a lot of their help and guidance to complete those ethics um, documents, which I wouldn't wish on my worst enemy, by the way, going through the RGS website and applications. (laughs) But that's another story. Yeah. Um, It kind of fits into that theme, though, with your ethics and your research research literature review and then your proposal kind of all fits into exploring your project. Yeah, Yeah, ethics sounds like it helps set parameters for your research as well. Yeah, and the thing with ethics is you can't really start your project until all the ethics has been approved. Mm. So it's not like I could just start recruiting or do lab work. Like there was really nothing to do until all the ethics had Mm. been submitted and approved. So, um, can I ask you how long the human, the in total that application process oh, took? I could probably look it up, but I think from submission of our first project, maybe it took about maybe I think I finished the protocol in April. We might have finally submitted all of the um, all of the documents by like May or June, and we didn't, you know, several revisions back and forth later. I don't think we were actually approved until October. Damn, that's like pretty much October, November. And by then I'm like, Christmas is around the corner. I'm not going to start recruiting now. I'm just going to get... And by the way, we were still ordering equipment in by the end of the year. We had these, um, you know, had to figure out what we needed. Yeah, your kits coming in. Yeah, so trying to get hospital access as well. So that was another process to go through. So really, I would say that looking back, my first year wasn't productive in the sense that I recruited patients I had data but it was essential to setting up admin it's like it's all admin work yeah um basically looking back as well like I didn't go through human ethics I went through animal ethics but it was a similar story I remember starting it maybe in February March and then I got approval the morning of my six-month presentation wow (laughs) and one of the questions I got asked was do you have ethics and um, it was actually quite funny because one of the um, guys who, I think he was the chair for Perkins Ethics Committee, he was repre- representing scientists, he was he was in the crowd and we made eye contact and we just shared us this moment where we were just like, yes, like 
three hours ago it was approved. Yeah, amazing. <laughs> but yeah, definitely that first year is just all about setting it up. And yeah, so it was a slow start, would you say? For, yeah. for I think for both of us it was a slow start, but it was essential in setting up yeah. some of that second year stuff. Um, did you at any point kind of doubt yourself? Like, what did I get myself into? Can I really do this? Um, yeah, at the start of the ethics process, I was doubting myself. I was yeah. like, what is this? <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> um, but other than but that, like with your supervisors, you were like, you know, I'm pretty happy. I'm happy with them. I'm happy with the project. I'm happy with the fact that I'm here. I came from a bad, uh, a less than optimal supervisor decision in my honours year. Um, and then going into my PhD, with a with a new lot of supervisors even new to the country a little somewhat um i was a bit nervous but i felt comfortable as well maybe it was just nervous for the project rather than nervous for them but i felt pretty good actually yeah Yeah, how about you like your one of your supervisors you yeah my supervisor nat we did honors together um so you know i think by then um, it was quite a good setup in the sense that we were comfortable with each other and, you know, we already had a good relationship and um, I see her definitely as more of a mentor rather than like, you know, a typical kind of supervisory role where you kind of just do as they say in a way. Yeah. So Nat, shout out to you. I know you listen to the <laughs> podcast, so thank you for your support. Um, and Girish, our other supervisor, I actually met him just before I started my first year and um, we both share Girish as a supervisor. And he's so funny. He's a really funny guy and he's a cardiologist, so he's really, really busy. But I think he makes a lot of time for us to check in, make sure we're okay. And he did a really good job of that, especially during COVID, which I think we really appreciated. Um, Yeah, I think we have a really good team. We have an amazing team, amazing facilities. Yeah, we're definitely luckier than most. Um, We're going to play our first voice message Um, sent in by Jordan, who is in his final year of his PhD writing up, and he's going to share with us his first year experience and how his second year went for him as well. Hi, uh, my name is Jordan Rollins, and I'm currently in my final year of PhD, uh, doing my thesis write-up and edits. I work on the microtubule biosynthesis enzyme, tubulin folding cofactor D, or TBCD, and its role in brain disorders and development. So TBCD is essential in building the microtubule structure and its dynamics, and mutations to this protein were identified by our lab to lead to secondary microcephaly, which is basically a smaller head and smooth brain. And this is significant as we are trying to identify how mutations in this protein can cause the pathology seen in children and give us an understanding of how this works and potentially even develop therapeutic targets for this disease disorder. Now, my PhD experience has probably been a roller coaster from day one. Uh, within my first week of my PhD, I definitely wasn't sure that I wanted to continue, and I basically ended up changing from diabetes research into neuroscience. I had several discussions around this time and eventually ended up changing supervisors, facilities, and even projects. Uh, it definitely enabled me to learn a lot about choosing the right lab and the right people to work with, and I guess I'm thankful for that. Uh, for me, my first year uh, was actually really enjoyable. I had a lot of fun in it, and in and out of the lab, but it was non-stop work-wise, um, really high pace, and this probably wasn't a great idea because PhD is more of a marathon than a sprint, and it led me to continuing that pace throughout my entire PhD. Uh, then second year, it was a lot more work. However, 
definitely struck with some unique challenges that I didn't see coming, which I think in the end really threw me for a six. And uh, before I knew it, I was in my final year, still having to work as fast paced under a lot of stress the entire time. I don't think it ever really let up. And in hindsight, it just really wore me down. Looking back at it, I would have to say I probably had the best part between my first year and the first half of my second year. I was able to enjoy myself, had lots of fun with the lab people and out of the lab. But after that, I really had to focus on the work. And then there was the idea of what was to come and what I had to do after my PhD. And then it got really stressful. And that's where I'm at now. Uh, thank you very much for listening. Thank you for that voice message, Jordan. Your research sounds really interesting, and I can tell that you obviously have a lot of passion for your work. And even though you were busy, it sounds like it was very full on, but you still managed to have a lot of fun in and out of the lab as well, which yeah. is good to hear. I'm not sure we want to hear exactly what kind of fun you've been having in, <laughs> in and out of the lab, but um, yeah, thanks for sharing. There's a bit of background. I used to share um, a lab with Jordan throughout honors year, and I can say that working around him or near him is, is, is an enjoyable experience that certainly took the edge off my honors year. That's great. We might have to um, bring him in. He can be our, he can bring a little a bit of fun into the, our work environment. <laughs> Just bring him in. Do you want to change project and supervisor again? <laughs> um, no, that's great. Yeah. Um, we're going to play another voice message for you now, which is a bit of a contrast from Jordan's message, but very similar to what me and you discussed, Ben, about having quite a slow start. And I think this second message is important um, to highlight just how important having a positive perspective to your life and your project can be. So this second voice message is from um, Nordiana, who is a second year student at Kern University. Hi, Adila and Ben. My name is Diana. For my PhD, I am looking at how aspirin prevents liver cancer. Basically, studying the mechanism behind it by looking closely at the cell types involved and how they may talk to one another. Looking back on my first year, it was definitely a slow start. What PhD students might not know or what I didn't know starting out is that not much data will be generated on the get-go. A lot of it is about building skills, the tools, or building knowledge around your research area. And that's where the two-year two slump comes in. You look back on the first year and you've got nothing much to show for it. It's quite demoralizing, but mining for data is not immediate. There's a lot of groundwork to be done, and then hopefully later on, that is where the rewarding bit comes in. Now, almost two years in, I recently had a frame shift in the way I thought about my PhD. At the start, I was quite starry-eyed, but I was stumped at this huge task ahead of me. Just how am I supposed to figure out how aspirin prevent ca prevents cancer? Um, or how do I contribute my research to humanity? But coming to the middle of my project now, I realized that it's not about groundbreaking research, but more about the scientific process. Is your science valid? Is it sound? And is it good science? And it's less about um, assessing how much you know, but rather than, rather uh, looking at your thinking process and how you approach the problem. And now suddenly I could channel my stresses more productively. So 
Now I'm less starry eyed but in a better direction hopefully. So I wish you guys good luck in your respective projects and we can do this guys. Thank you so much Diana for sending that voice message and um, giving that bit of confidence to us at the end. Um, I think we can relate with what Diana was saying Ben about that really slow start and not having a lot of data yeah. sort of happening in our first year but that it was very important to set that groundwork for second year. Um, so Diana, you mentioned you had a slump or a slow start to your second year, but that you it was important for you to have this shift in perspective and you started you know, focusing more on doing good science rather than, uh, I think you mentioned groundbreaking research. I think that's a really good point because you, know, you wanna make sure you're doing your research with integrity, you're doing it according to ethics, and you know you're not it sounds terrible but you hear these horror stories about papers being retracted because results had been falsified and people had made up patients and data and information and spreading false science which is not great so we want to make sure that kind of thing doesn't happen definitely a negative result was still a result and it just it could save someone else a lot of time especially if it's a, just think of someone else like a phd student had came across your results and and they were trying to replicate something, they're trying to introduce it or have a part of their research which was covering yours and then they discovered that that was actually false. I mean, mm. uh, it's a lot of stress to go through, unnecessary stress at that. Yeah, and people make mistakes. So as long as you can stand your ground and say you've been doing all the right things, mm. I think that makes all the difference in the world, uh, having a good night's sleep as well, yes. <laughs> being able to live with yourself. Um, how was second year for you, Ben? Was it a slow start? Yeah, uh, first year was slow, second year wasn't much quicker for me. <laughs> <laughs> I had my ethics approval and then I was in the process of ordering animals and getting that experiment set up, but there was a lot of optimization that I had to do come up with my animals. So, and can you explain to people just what optimization might mean as well? So optimization was determining the right, well, there was a lot of optimizing, so there was uh, optimizing protocols. So for example, I had MRI and PET imaging components in my study. So I had to optimize um, what sequences were gonna be run, uh, if the MRI or PET imaging would be able to detect what I was looking for, and um, also the techniques uh, on, um, on analyzing these organs, like make sure that they were going to basically give the results and the, the insight that was required. Uh, this was a really lengthy process for me because uh, I had to get the mice from eight weeks old and then my experiments didn't start until they were, what, 16 weeks. So mm -hmm. I had two months, three months of handling them before I actually got to the point where I could start optimizing. And that was like on small groups of mice. So my whole second year, I felt I, I felt I was waiting for mice. Yeah, right. And that wasn't where we currently are. You actually had to travel to the other Perkins building to do the animal work. Is that right? That's correct. So it was a lot of back and forth for you, wasn't it? Yeah, it Transperth, was. if you're listening, should sponsor <laughs> Ben. <laughs> so, uh, you know, with all that travel time, did you feel like you were being sort of productive as well or was that kind of a slump? I tried to be productive. I tried to read or tried to pull out my laptop to a bit, but then I found that just... Traveling was exhausting, like yeah. going backwards and forwards. I know that some days when I had the MRI, I'd be at my, I'd arrive at Perkins South at five thirty in the morning, what? and then I'd tra I'd um, travel north, and then I'd start there at like six thirty, seven o'clock, mm -hmm. and then I'd finish there at about three or four, and then I'd come back, and by the time I'd finish here, it was like 
six o'clock and then I'd kind of have to do that again on the Tuesday. But thankfully, I finished a little bit early on the Tuesday. I finished like one o'clock. But by the time you do that, you know. You're um, just exhausted. It doesn't yeah. leave much room to do other things, does it? No. Yeah, right. No. So were you kind of glad um, when all that was over, I guess? So glad. <laughs> so, Finally. so glad. Because um, that also meant you had all your data and you can then continue on with more analysis and the actual lab work actually began. Right. It actually that. began, yeah. Yeah. Um, but of course, because that process took so long, it was like a bit of the lab work got done, a bit of the optimization was, the protocols were set. Then the next next stage started. Um, and that kind of ran over Christmas mm. of 2019. Mm-hmm. Um, that was not a very good time. Oh. I was working over Christmas and... Thankfully, it all wrapped up, though, before COVID lockdown. So I was thankful for that. So and that then, was a plus. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I, I couldn't imagine trying to just make do with that. Like, just would, what Transperth was reduced as well. Yeah, it adds an extra layer of complexity and yes. unknown. Mm-hmm. Um, I think for me, second year was, unfortunately, I had to accept the reality that I had to be here every day. <laughs> <laughs> I, couldn't, I couldn't just roll out of bed and do my work. I actually had to make the effort to get dressed and come in. But that's okay. They've given us a nice little study area, not a study area, I should say, like an office, like an office space. UWA provides us with a computer um, and I've kind of taken over the kind of cupboards that are near my desk. So I've got all my clinical sort of equipment and then my patient files and stuff. So I've kind of taken over and I'm sitting kind of on the very, very far side and I've got a nice sort of window wall where the sunlight kind of comes in. So it's really nice, actually. I've brought in like, you know, little things just to make my desk kind of homely and make me feel like I want to be there rather than just leaving it plain. Maybe you'll need to share a picture of this. Um... Uh, Yeah, maybe just like little, like not posters, just little like words of encouragement and, you know, little snacks in the drawer, just little things like that. Um, Yeah, so I'm here every day and I started recruiting patients. So started recruiting, I think I was, I recruited one patient and then I was recruiting a few others and then like the whole COVID thing happened. Mm. And so obviously that all kind of stopped because here in WA, no one was sure what would happen. So a lot of doctors were seeing patients through telehealth conferencing, which is all online. Patients who were non, non-essential or didn't have any major procedures that needed to be done were kind of advised to not come in. Um, so our supervisor as well was like, we don't know what's happening, stay home. Um, you know, you guys might be young and fit and okay, but, you know, you've got to think about your parents, your grandparents, other people. So just to be safe, just, you know, let's work from home as much as we can. So um, it was hard because we didn't know what would happen at that point. When would all this be over? How can I continue recruiting? And, you know, obviously this impacted my PhD a lot. Um, Did you find you can do other things during that time? I suppose you just started though, so it was really an yeah, awkward time for you. Yeah, it was so awkward. But what kept me going was I guess I knew a lot of people would be in the same boat and that, you know, hopefully the university would grant extensions which they have, they have said that we can get extensions towards the end if we need it. So that makes me feel a little bit better. Mm. Um, Yeah, so we talked a little bit about what we did during um, COVID and the lockdown and what that was like for our PhDs, Uh, but that was in episode five. So if you haven't yet listened to that episode, please do go back and check it out. 
Um, we're going to play another voice message for you now, and it's from Aswin, who is a chemistry PhD, so something a little bit different. Let's hear about his first year and second year experiences. Hi, I'm Aswin, and I'm a third year PhD student at Curtis University. My PhD is in chemistry, and I'm looking at improving our understanding of how chemical compounds are produced by plants at a microscopic level and seeing if the information provides new insights into other potential uses for these compounds. The first year of my PhD was fairly relaxed, honestly. My PhD followed on from my honours project, so I spent the first couple of months really tying up my honours work and, with the intention of publishing it. But I eventually found my groove, but I really wasn't that efficient of a worker in my first year. So if I knew what I knew now, I could have easily done twice as much, but a PhD is all a learning process, right? In terms of whether or not the second year of my PhD hit me particularly hard, for me personally, it didn't. But that's really because of my subject area, though. My research didn't require ethics approval or a long candidacy, so I spent most of my first year doing my PhD work to begin with. So when second year came around, I was already fairly confident in my abilities as a chemist. So my second year was probably the most productive year of my PhD by far, and in retrospect, I actually got quite a bit done. Thank you for sharing that, Aswin. Um, it's interesting to hear about a different kind of research going on to the health sort of medical side that we're used to. You sound like you're doing all the right things and you are set on, you know, finishing strong, which is amazing. Thank you so much. Um, ben. Was second year the most productive year for you, like it was for Aswin? No, it wasn't the most productive year for me. In fact, it didn't even really feel like the second year. It kind of felt like it was year 1.5. I mean... Is that because of COVID or just in general? No, no. My, oh, my second year was... Like oh, your second year? Yeah, yeah, sorry. Okay. 2019. So right. it was still like... I knew what I had to do, but I was probably still like nervous about taking those steps forward or still like had those... Doubts. Know, yeah, the doubts, the barriers, whether they be reagents coming in I just ordered them or there were mental barriers you know just going into the lab and you know trying to optimize um, some of the protocols with these precious samples that had taken me a few months to get mm. so there was all sorts of nerves going on for me yeah right yeah. and when you were in the lab what kind of work were you doing so I was doing a lot of histology at that point I was doing a lot of sectioning trying to just make sure I had to learn how to section to mm. on a cryostat so this was for those of you that know what I'm talking about, um, I was using fresh tissue, so not like formalin fix, which I've heard is much easier. <laughs> so um, they say. Yes, yeah. Um, so I had to learn how to do that, and I had to learn basically histology. I had I had no histology experience before, before that. So and was there someone who could teach you? I, I kind of tried to piggyback some knowledge off Pathwest, which is... Um, Next to Perkins, uh, which is quite good. Um, we have some con some of our supervisors have some contacts as well over there, so that was quite good being able to go over and use some of their equipment and some of the space that was already set up. Nice. Uh, it helped kind of set up the space that we have here for um, to suit what I needed. So that was really helpful. Yeah. Really, and really then helpful. I remember you were doing some different types of staining as well once all of that histology was over. Yeah. Talk about some of the staining that you do. Um, at that point, I was just doing some basic H&E staining, some, started doing some Oreto and some trichrome. At that point, it's still sort of narrowing in on the antibodies that I wanted to use for fluorescent staining. Um, 
So it was very basic staining in that that stage, I guess. Um, yeah, right. But mm. I think for me in my second year, it's mostly still the recruitment. So this this year has been my second year, just being in the hospital back and forth recruiting. Um, and there are a couple of things that no one really ever tells you directly about doing research and doing a PhD, and that's the ton of sort of paperwork that you have to keep up with. So, you know, making sure all the patient <laughs> files are updated, all the information is correct and, you know, booking them in for their follow-ups and, you know, just making sure, that, um, you know, all of that, the files are kept in order and... Your um, calendar is marked. Oh, your calendar. Oh, don't even get me started on all the organisation, <laughs> all the spreadsheets, all the Excel, all the paperwork, you know, the meetings. I'm sure you can relate as well, having meetings every week now with your supervisors because you're almost nearing the end. Yeah. Uh, all the little presentations you have to do. Um, They're all little things, but they soon add up. They add up, don't they? Yeah. It takes time out of your day, but then by the time you get all these little things done, it's just like, okay, do I do I go home and call it or do yeah. I push on into the night? It's terrible because then I have to divide my time after I recruit. So when I recruit a patient, I actually get some different samples from them. So uh, I'm not sure how people are with this kind of thing, but just for those who are interested, um, when we recruit the patients, um, what we're actually interested in collecting in terms of samples, we collect four samples from them because we want to have a look at their gut bacteria. So we collect saliva. So I'm essentially sitting across from a patient as they spit into this cup and some of the saliva that I've had to process in the lab has not been fun. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Um, you have to have quite a strong stomach, I guess, um, because then we also collect dental plaque. So a lot of research is interested in looking at the relationship between plaque in your, um, on your teeth with um, sort of heart health or heart disease. So I actually had to go to a dentist. Um, one of our colleagues... Um, Bianca who works in our lab his wife is a, a dentist so he was happy enough to set up that I could go to her practice and she would actually train me how to use the instruments and oh, how no. to scrape plaque off teeth the correct way so I did all that before my PhD as well in my first year so when second year came around and I actually had to scrape plaque from people's teeth um you're an expert you're ready oh to go my God. yeah but it's it's not yeah, it's just not. <laughs> <laughs> not a pleasant experience. It's really not um, because I think when people go into a hospital, they don't plan on going into hospitals. So sometimes they don't pack the essentials. And, you know, you can imagine if you haven't brushed your teeth for a couple of days, you kind of have that fur build up mm. <laughs> on your teeth. Um, so sometimes you get a lot of plaque. But, um, yeah, so that's the second sample we collect. We collect some blood as well. And blood's okay. I'm not that iffy with blood. Um, so sometimes I'm actually trained to take blood qualified phlebotomist, but I have to admit I'm a bit out of practice. And with some of the patients that come in, they're quite, um, elderly or they've got really tricky veins, in which case I don't feel as confident to do it. So I'll either get a nurse or a doctor to help, or usually, um, the phlebotomists are quite happy to help as well. And then I just kind of collect that, take it to the lab and process it. So we spin it down, separate the layers. And then all I do is store the serum and the plasma until we go and do analysis later on. And do you want to guess what the last sample is? You probably know um, if we're looking at gut bacteria, this is probably the most important sample for us. It's the, the best for last, right? It's yeah. the, um, the product that comes. <laughs> the poop. <laughs> yeah, yeah, so we collect poop. Um, currently, I have a ton of poop in our freezer, in our minus 80. And future me is going to have to 
<laughs> going through all of this. And I think I was telling someone, I was like, so you've got these little specimen jars and the jar has got a scoop on the lid, which is what you scoop it into and then you pop it into the jar and you obviously seal it really tight. But I'm like, you have like all of these jars that all have lids on them that are screwed on tight and you put them into a bag and the bag can be sealed. But Ben, when you open the bag up, it's just amazing you get like this. You still get a whiff of like... I can only imagine the, the aroma that you get up. I just don't understand. <laughs> um, oh. And they're all frozen too. But anyway, so those are the four really fun samples we collect from each patient. And we also run a couple of questionnaires as well. So okay. those yeah. questionnaires obviously need to be imported onto Excel or SPSS, whatever. And then um, the samples collected need to be processed and stored correctly so that we can batch analyze them after we've recruited everyone as well. So that's what I'm currently doing in my second year. Um, so you're, you see, you go into batch analyze them. So once you finish recruiting the first lot, you'll run the analysis on that, or are you going to do that at the end? Yeah. Give so you another collection? It's a little bit tricky. So essentially what we see, we see the exact same patient twice, or we hope to anyway. So we hope to collect baseline samples from when they were first in hospital. And we want to do a six month follow up and collect the exact same samples to have a look at whether anything's changed in their gut bacteria environment from that first time they were in the hospital, for example, with a heart attack. I don't know if you guys remember, we spoke about what our projects were in, in, in the first episode. So um, essentially, we would like to have in each group, a patient that has come in for two visits that we have two samples for at six okay. months apart. And from my understanding, just to reduce as much bias and sort of any issues and things like that that might arise, what we would do is analyze all of the patient's baseline and follow-ups together. Okay. okay. So patient one baseline follow-up, patient two baseline follow-up in, in that kind of batch. That's going to be a it's, very yeah, busy. It's going to be year. very busy when all the samples come in. But I think we need to probably sit down and have a discussion as to where we're going with recruitment because research, you can plan as much as you want, but mm -hmm. certain things aren't going to work out and you need to, you know, change directions. So we kind of need to have a look at what we've done, how much longer we have and what we need to tweak so that we mm -hmm. have results at the end because I can't just keep recruiting, recruiting, recruiting. I'm going to run out of time. That's it. That's um, it. Yeah. Um, how are your numbers looking? This may not like, you don't have to give exact numbers. You can say you're getting close. You sort of need a bit more work in a few areas. Yeah. Um, I mean, I don't think we've mentioned to our viewers specifically how many patients in each group we're looking for, but we have a couple of different subgroups and in each subgroup, we kind of want 50 patients as well as their healthy relatives. So we can have a look at comparing the gut bacteria of a healthy and, and a cardiovascular disease individual. So the healthies have been hard to recruit so far, so we don't have very many. In terms of the ACS group, we have about just almost almost 50. So you've almost got the number. Almost yeah. finished that ACS group. Um, little things keep popping up, but we're almost there. And we also have a separate heart failure group, which isn't going as well simply because... Um, There's less patients coming yeah, through. Yeah. Heart attacks are... Um, less common? A little bit more... A little bit more popular, <laughs> a little bit easier to recruit from, I guess, because yeah. there's a big CCU or coronary care unit um, where patients with quite bad heart attacks come through. That's where I would recruit them from. But yeah, we're getting there. So I'd say in total about almost 70 patients so far and counting 
that sounds really impressive and like oh, I don't know that is really impressive I've seen you work um, I'm sure you've seen me on my bad days as well where I just don't have the motivation to go there and speak to people because it's so mentally exhausting yeah it is it is I remember the at the beginning when you first started there was um, a few bar- barriers that you'd spoke of yeah and, I think um, most of them were mental barriers that I kind of made up for myself but you're right over the so I think the first barrier, obviously, so you go and check the handover sheets and you check, does this patient have the symptoms that I need for me to be able to recruit them? Mm. This is going into a day in the life of a dealer now. <laughs> but anyway, so I check the handover sheets and then I make a list of patients that I want to go and talk to. Okay. And it's so hard because you see the names on the paper, but you actually don't know who these people are, how sick they are, yep. because if they are really, really sick, they're not going to want to listen to you. You then have to knock on the door. You then have to try and introduce and sell yourself and sell your project to them in mm-hmm. like 30 seconds. So I'll say, hi, my name's Adila. I'm on the research team. I'm doing X, Y, Z. Do you mind if I come in so you can hear a little bit about it? At this point, they'll either say yes or no. And if they say no, honestly, I don't get offended. I'll just be like, yeah, okay, thanks. All the best with your recovery. Um, but if they say yes, I come in. Um, and then I'll explain the project in a bit more depth. And then I'll ask them, is that something that you're, you sound like you're happy to help us with? And at this point, they'll either say yes or no. And then if they say yes, we go through some more screening questionnaires to make sure that they are 100% suitable for the study. And we also go through, start going through some of the sample collection. Um, and usually they can't poo on command, so I have to leave the <laughs> stool kit. It would be great if they could, but I leave the stool kit with them overnight and I'm sure you've been there multiple times. Like this one time I was having lunch and I think you and Sylvia were there and I get a call and it was from a patient. Hey, um, I've got your I've got your sample ready. Can you come and collect it? I'm like, yeah, I'll come right after lunch. Like I'm so desensitized. I just go and collect it, pop it in the freezer. And that's literally my job now. I run around after poo. I'm the poo girl. <laughs> so um, oh where God. was I? Yeah. Wow, and I've met so many lovely patients. Yeah. And some of them love to talk and all they want is for someone to listen. And I've showed you, hey, some of those random texts that I get from patients, which is really funny. So I have to give out my number so they can, obviously, I'll have to contact them down the line anyway. But also while they're in hospital, if they send me a text that the sample's ready or whatever. But like... That's quite yeah. a process that you have to go through just yeah. to recruit even a single patient. Like it's a I lot mean, of work. Yes. Sometimes it's so mentally exhausting because sometimes some days I'm just like... I don't want to talk to anyone. Yeah. I don't have the energy to deal with this today. And so doing, I try and keep myself busy doing other things. Yeah. Doing that day in, day out, and then yeah. balance that with admin. With that. It's like Groundhog yeah. Day. Every day kind of blends into one day. That sounds exhausting. But I'm but lucky, though. You've done you know, so well. It, it's nice to meet different people, and some of them are so nice, and some of them are genuinely interested in what I'm doing, which yeah. is always so great. Um, yeah, in a way, it feels rewarding, but... You have to be in the mood to do it. <laughs> and yeah. I think, yeah, it, for anyone out there doing clinical research or research that involves human participants, honestly, you guys are so special. I don't know how you do it. It's such a struggle some days, but I think at the end, it will definitely be re- rewarding. Ben, did I ever tell you this story about this one patient that I had recruited? And I think he was um, a Buddhist monk or he was training to be a monk, but he was very spiritual and he was really into meditating um, because I knocked on his door. Did I tell you this? No, you haven't told me. Because I knocked on his door and it was all dark, like the blinds were down. And I was like, oh, I'm so sorry to interrupt you having a little sleep. 
And he's like, oh, I wasn't sleeping. I was like, oh, I was meditating. I was like, oh, I, I feel even worse. Like, I'm so sorry to interrupt your meditation. Because once you get into it, you get, like, quite into it and quite calm. And, like, somebody just, you know, opening the door and letting all the light in is probably yeah. not the most conductive, conducive to your meditating. But he was really cool. He was like, no, don't feel bad. And we ended up talking for a really long time. And I was talking about how I wanted to try doing more meditation because you kind of check in on your body. Have you ever done meditating? I've tried, but only through some of those apps, you know, to yeah. improve your sleep or meditate. Yeah, yeah, I actually use this particular app called Headspace for those who are interested in like a five-minute meditation. Um, I tried doing that and it was really good because you check in on yourself, you slow down your mind, you focus on your breathing and you kind of keep the stress at bay. But obviously, I don't really have a lot of time to do that <laughs> now. No, I think, yeah, it's about making time. But anyway, we started talking about meditating. And he told me about how he goes to the monastery, which is up in the hills near the mountains. And there's like a nice forest nearby where he goes to meditate at the monastery. And he's like, oh, I don't want to try and like convert you or um, anything and don't feel obliged. But if you do want to come to meditate... Um, you know, just give me a call and I can take you up to the monastery and we oh, can wow. meditate together. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> and he was so lovely, but I was like, mm, I don't think I'll be going to the forest in the mountains <laughs> to meditate with you. <laughs> True story. You meet the craziest people. It's, it's, I, yeah. No, I love recruiting sometimes. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah. That's such a good story. <laughs> it's quite the unique insight I think you have as well. It's yeah. just, and, um, I can't imagine the way that the patients would feel like helping and contributing to something that, that they themselves like are suffering from. I mean, yeah, they probably feel good themselves. I mean, if you think about it, we wouldn't be where we are now without the research that has gone on. So mm -hmm. can you imagine how much of an impact this will have, you know, down the track? Yeah. yeah. Um, we're going to listen to our final voice message from um, Shiraz, who is a final year PhD student currently writing up his thesis. And I think he sums up a lot of what we've spoken about in a very clear, succinct way. Uh, first of all, I would like to thank Adila and Ben for inviting me to their podcast. My name is Shiraz and I submitted my PhD earlier this year. At the moment, I'm working on my examiner's comments. My research is in the field of cancer immunology and looking at how mesothelioma, which is one of the most aggressive forms of cancer, affects our body's immune cells, namely dendritic cells and macrophages. The doctrine of philosophy is an independent process in that the ability and the motivation need to come from within. Like most PhD projects, the first several months of my time was dedicated to intensively reviewing the literature surrounding my topic. I was also trying to learn all the previous work that my lab has done and figuring out what else that can be done and trying to figure the missing bits. Throughout my first year, I have had access to a wide range of training programs designed to improve my research skills. I tried to learn and get trained in instruments and techniques such as animal handling, confocal microscopy, flow cytometry, which I felt were needed at that time. There were courses that were organized by Curtin Robertson Library for statistical analysis such as SPSS and EndNote. I am confident that if you take the time to immerse yourself in the full range of services and activities available, there is no experience quite like the first year of a PhD. Some people even call and use to refer to the first year as the honeymoon period. <laughs> 
Second year was quite stressful actually. I remember I was trying to optimize all my experiments and protocol and I wanted to make sure that I don't waste any of my prestigious samples. Also I could feel which direction my PhD was going through. I had to make some adjustments and learn, learn some new techniques such as seahorse metabolic analysis and western plotting to get some additional information. Also I realized that I need to do phlebotomy training so I don't have to depend on anyone to get fresh blood samples for research. Overall second year I guess is the most important year of your PhD as it sets up a base for all the research and major experiments. Again, thank you Adila and Ben for inviting me and letting me share my PhD experience. Also, I would like to thank the audience for listening to me. Thank you. Thank you so much Shiraz for sending your voice message through. Um, and it sounds like you're definitely one of those students that really took advantage of every opportunity available to upskill and add more things to your expertise, which is amazing. Um, and for those of you in second year, I think a lot of what the voice messages have said in common was second year was pivotal in setting up a foundation. So make sure you're making use of your time. Yeah, definitely. Very well said. And uh, I think it goes to show as well, like comparing all the voice messages we've received, everyone sort of has the same list of what they have to go through. It's just even when you compare different areas and even looking in the same area, like a lot of us in the biological sciences, it depends. Um, we go through the same things but at different rates so you don't have to compare yourself to others. Uh, always know, even if you have to talk to your supervisors about this, you're on the right track. Keep going. You're doing Trust well. Trust your journey. Yes, 100%. A reminder first and foremost to myself. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I mean, some people like Jordan, like you said from day one, it was a roller coaster and it never let up. And oh, then, yes. you know, I think a lot of us, especially me and you, we were saying how our first year we were quite productive, but it was a slow start. And mm -hmm. then the second year kind of crept in on us. And now you're putting in sort of the last couple of... Yeah. I think uh, Jordan's advice, this is a marathon, not a sprint, mm. really... Um, Summarises it well. It does, it does. And for you new starters, keep that in mind. Don't let you... Um, don't overwork yourself in the first year and probably take a mix, I guess, of my first year and a dealer's first year. Like, don't do the full nine to five. <laughs> Have a few days at home. Yeah, I mean, if possible, yeah. if you're productive at home and you can work from home... I, especially with the COVID situation now, I don't see why you can be a bit more flexible. Um, mm. It will save you time on transport if it saves you the effort of getting up, getting dressed and, you know, showing up and you're still being even 110% productive at home. Then have a, have that chat with your supervisors and your, and your colleagues if possible. You know, hopefully they're open and flexible enough to that idea. That's one really good thing that came out of COVID, I think. Mm. Um but yeah, trust your journey. Don't compare yourself to others. And I like Shiraz's advice as well about making the most of every opportunity possible. Like sign up for things. If they're free and they'll do you good, do it. I particularly like his um, advice on learning about other techniques and equipment. I mean, I remember um, when I was a curtain, I ended up learning about flow cytometry and I never ended up using the skill, but... You never know if if you go and do that, you might find another avenue, another path which your project can go down, and you don't know. It might be the most exciting part of your project. <laughs> and maybe like you can even expand that out of your project. What if you're looking for a job later on, and you might mm -hmm. not have directly used it for your PhD, but you can say, "Look, I've done flow cytometry, or I've learned about it in the past. 
maybe that would be a good tick for future employers as well. Yeah. Um, I like Asman's advice, you know, you're more confident in second year, you're really, you know, in the thick of it, you kind of now have a good idea what your project is about and you've got to head there. And I think Deanna's definitely on the money with, you know, make sure you're doing good science, make sure yeah. you're, you know, doing all the right things where possible. Um, and I just like, goes to show the power of a simple change in perspective as well. Definitely. And um, don't forget Jordan's advice as well, making sure you're picking the right supervisor in your project. You've got to be mm. happy from the start. So 100%. You, if you're having those doubts at the beginning, please do go address them. Yeah, and we will do another episode on this later on, how important is the project versus the supervisor or, you know, um, things like that. So that's definitely something to think about before you start. And also the opposite. I think we're going to have an episode where, about when things haven't exactly gone to plan with either project or supervisor. But Ooh, messy. stay tuned. <laughs> yeah, stay tuned. I think that brings us to the end of today's episode. We'd like to thank everyone who took the time and the effort to send in those voice recordings. So thank you so much, Jordan, Aswin, Diana, and Shiraz. Very much appreciate it. Um, ben, what are we going to be talking about next week, hopefully? Yeah, so next week we'll discuss ethics in both uh, an animal and human uh, research project and how we as researchers make sure we're being as safe as possible whilst um, taking the utmost care and welfare for our research subjects. Um, We'd love to have you back. See you then. Thank you so much for your time and listening to us. And thank you everyone again for sending in your uh, voice messages. Cool. See you next week. Bye. If you'd like to get involved, drop us your questions and your queries. Let us know what you'd like to hear on the show. And you can find us on our Instagram at So You Think You Can PhD. And there's a link to our email there as well. Thank you so much. See you next week.